You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, brought to you by Go Wild. Now, the Go Wild app has added some really cool and exciting functionality to their app. And the first one I want to talk about is the Near Me function. And basically what this does, it allows you to engage and connect with people in your area. You guys can talk about gear. You guys can talk about hunting areas. You guys can talk about what's going on in the woods. And it just allows the users to be more of a community and connect easier. The second part is the gearbox. And what the gearbox is, it is a an opportunity for the users to not only see reviews on products and see what the Go Wild community is using in the field, what products they're using, but it also allows you guys to purchase up to 150,000 products. There's you, there's a shopping function on it. So Check out the Go Wild app. If you haven't downloaded it to your phone yet, you need to, and you can do that at any app store that is currently available. Go Wild. It's an awesome app. Check them out. Welcome back to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and today we have a very interesting almost history-based podcast about the fur trade in Iowa and how the fur trade along the Mississippi River kind of set up Iowa to become a state. Uh, We talk about towns that were created around the fur trade. We talk about Native Americans. We talk about the key players in the fur trade along the Mississippi River and people and time and uh, about industry and how it all kind of helped build America and especially the state of Iowa. So that's what today's episode is about. Really quick intro here, but before we get into the podcast, I just want to say that if you haven't had time to check out the Iowa Sportsman Atlas, and it's kind of a breakdown of all the counties in the United or in the in the state of Iowa. We talk about the animals that are in those counties, where some of the uh, good fishing spots are, where the uh, I guess uh, parks are, locations, animals. It's a really cool kind of resource to keep in your truck when you're kind of bebopping around uh, Iowa. So uh, take a look at that. And you can get that at uh, iowasportsman.com. I'm sure there's information in the magazine, the Iowa Sportsman magazine, that everybody here should be uh, subscribed to, especially if you're in the state of Iowa or surrounding states. And, uh, yeah, just some really good content coming out of the Iowa Sportsman website, obviously the podcast and the magazine. So uh, make sure you get that trifecta. And now let's get into today's podcast about the history of the fur trade in Iowa. Okay. In three, two, one. All right. On the phone with me today, Mr. Troy Hepker. Troy, what's up, man? Hey, Dan, how are you today? I'm doing great, man. I tell you what, the last couple of days in Iowa have been absolutely gorgeous, low humidity, decent temperatures, you know, it's that uh, get outside and do something type weather. 
sure is. I think everybody ought to be taking advantage of some some open water fishing or some getting on the water or doing some things outdoors and and enjoying it. We're finally getting our Iowa summer here. Yeah. Uh, I tell you what, I've been out and I've done some hanging of tree stands and putting out trail cameras for the uh, um, for the whitetail season that's going to happen in about four months. But other than that, man, I uh, I've been fishing a couple times with most of the focus being on my kids, but I really haven't gotten out this year to just like rip some lips. You know what I mean? Yeah, I haven't either. I, I haven't uh, got out much, but I have uh, got a lot of some gear ready. We purchased a couple of new poles and, and uh, just like you, I've got kids young and, and uh, got them going. My boys have both went fishing with their grandpa and great grandpa here at our, I'm around Southwest Iowa. So we're here close to Creston. So we have great fishing at three mile and 12 mile and green valley lakes and i carry and all around and uh so they've been out doing a little bit of fishing but i haven't with work and being busy i haven't yet but i intend to yeah well you know the reason that you are on the uh the episode today this this podcast today is because you wrote a very interesting two-part article in the may and june issues of the iowa sportsman magazine and I'll be completely on, honest with you. I am a kind of a history nut, especially when it comes to the expansion uh, westward of the United States. And I've always kind of followed, um, you know, the, the the usual suspects as far as Western exploration going through, you know, the, the prairie heading the mountains and even going further west than that. And there's one group of people who always seem to be involved in those conversations and that's trappers and these guys who were you know going out to the frontier living in the frontier before i guess it was even kind of the frontier you know what i mean it was Mm -hmm. just nobody lived there but these guys were out making a living trapping and you know bringing the furs back and doing all that stuff and that's what this um these article articles were about is the history of trapping in Iowa and uh man I, you know I got geeked out when I saw that so I'm, I'm just gonna kind of rely on you and I'll ask some questions along the way but um you know I, I guess the first question is what led you to write a two-piece article like this well I'm, I'm a history buff like you too Dan I I uh always enjoyed that kind of thing and history in general american history in particular and and uh of course being an outdoor buff loving to hunt and trap and and those things over the years why not tie the two together and so uh i don't know i've wrote for the magazine a pretty regular basis for probably about uh, a decade or so and and uh patrick is so good um to to give you freedom as an editor he he uh you know he trusts you and he he uh, a lot of times lets lets you as a writer come up with your own ideas and 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 you know present them to him and and um, he's he's always uh, open minded about different articles and and uh, you know I had this idea um, really the first part of the just the idea of doing the article um, came from a really a family vacation we took last summer uh, we went up to the North Shore up in Minnesota uh, the North Shore of Lake Superior. It's a uh, beautiful area, um, and that area up there, we, we kind of rented a house on the lake and, and enjoyed a relaxing time, but we did see a few sites along the way, and one of those was at Grand Portage, and Grand Portage, if anyone's familiar, is a, a little town, but it's it's very near the border of Canada, and it's right up at that tip of that upper uh, part of Minnesota above Lake Superior when you travel kind of northeast towards Canada and Thunder Bay. And uh, right before you cross the border is, is Grand Portage, and right there is Grand Portage National Park. And it's a, one of the tiniest national parks in the country, but it, it features uh, what was a fort there at one time um, that was a trading fort, uh, held rendezvous and uh, for the fur trade in the uh, 1700s. And fur traders would go back and forth between Montreal across uh, down to Grand Portage and uh, if anybody ever gets up there and has a chance to visit it and you're interested in, in uh, you know, fur trading or the outdoors or just history of the Ameri- you know, of America in general, it's a great place to go. It's got a palisade 
wood fence all around the fort. Inside uh, would have been, there was uh, replica buildings that were put in the exact locations of where they were at one time. And and um, the the site itself is restored to from drawings of the original site and uh, the buildings uh, that are there of the uh, of today resemble what would have been buildings that were spectacular back in the day. They they were for the uh, rich and powerful that would come and uh, at the time and and stay there for two weeks at a time during their annual or biannual rendezvous. And uh, the rendezvous, for those you don't know, that might would be the rendezvous of of, of the voyagers and trappers and um, even the uh, Indians that would come and bring their pelts to trade and and sell for wares and goods from the from the east and from Europe. And uh, these boats would travel back and forth across the lakes and bring bring in loaded with with things to to trade everything from textiles to metal pots to blankets to you name it for fur and then those same boats would return back to montreal uh, loaded down with furs and they only had in that far north a certain window to be able to travel the lakes before the ice froze and and then once it thawed again in the spring and and anyway that that trip was of uh, of great interest and and it's really neat you can see a, a fur of every animal of north america there you can tour the whole thing and i don't know after a while i got home and um i just had this idea that wonder what the history of iowa fur trading was like you know and how how something i hadn't researched a ton i'd read some in the past about it but i wanted to get down to more the nitty-gritty of how how where did our heritage of iowa come from and and so really the article is is kind of uh, a tie-in to um how we became um you know, how the West and, you know, the land after the Louisiana Purchase and Iowa included become um, really settled, you know, because of the fur trade in the end. And, and those early fur traders that came here through the area and traded with the natives um, and uh, how everything got going. All right. So there's there's so much into that introduction that uh, obviously we have to break it down a, a little bit. But as far as the actual state of Iowa or back then the area that is now Iowa when did when did the fur trade in this area kind of start well that you know as near as I could tell from from many records of course uh, we all know maybe the name Lewis and Juliet and and uh, Pierre Marquette the Juliet Marquette expedition in 1673 came down the Mississippi River and while they didn't trade really or establish posts or anything of that nature, it was really the first European um, expedition that, that rolled along our eastern border. Um, and then a few years later, there was a man named uh, Nicholas Perrault. I believe that's how you would pronounce his name. Um, he was French in origin and uh, moved to New France, which had been the, you know, Canada. Um, he traveled uh, as work, um, as a fur trader. Um, he was sent to. Um, north of here and down through the rivers to get to uh, Prairie du Chien and basically kind of explore and discover um, opportunities to expand trade amongst Indians um, down through here in the, the Great River, you know, they called it the Mississippi. Uh, it was such a, such a great expansive waterway. It allowed them access to new untapped, you know, regions. And, and of course, you know, the fur trade was was big out east along along the Great Lakes and, and in New York and where were areas of population. And so those fur companies were, at the time, constantly looking for new, you know, routes um, to uh, bring in fur because Europe's European fur demand was high. You know, everybody back in those days wore beaver felted hats and, and fur-lined, you know, clothes, clothing in the, in the winter. And, and so... Uh, the first, you know, time he came down was 1685. Um, he established three trading posts along the river uh, in the years to follow, and that was basically our the first uh, kind of documented um, incursion into Iowa land along the river up in northeast Iowa, up around Prairie du Chien, and uh, um, and from there there may have been undocumented, you know, explorers down through there too. But we have what. You know, we have what we have, the records that we have, and those are what we, you know, what we know of, so to be to be true. 
So a majority of the, tr- the, the animals and furs were brought back to Europe at that point. You bet. Okay. Yep. Yep. Um, there was a large majority of them taken back to, to Europe. Uh, that that's, you know, those, those companies like the Hudson Bay company was founded around 1670. So, uh, Hudson Bay, you know, I think a lot of people would recognize that name of course has been one of the, uh, longest standing companies in the history of the world. You know, they've, uh, um, they established their company, um, and, and just the history of that is, is, you know, really interesting. And so they, um, they were constantly looking for different trade routes or different fur trading routes and, and exploring new areas where they could, they could get to. And so all that stuff went back up through Montreal and, and, uh, then on to Europe, you know, and, and that's kind of how they, how they operated. Okay. So it, it all, it, it started up, you know, coming off of uh, the northern, northern up in Minnesota and working its way down uh, into Iowa. You know, the guy, the guy was set out to find more territory to collect more furs from. Correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep, he sure did. So you know, obviously, in expansion, we're heading west, and we're heading from as far as the trapping is concerned, and we're heading south and, and west. Um, when did it? when did Iowa really become popular or really take a foothold? And, you know, because obviously we are on the Mississippi river, which at the time was the, one of the biggest navigation routes in the entire, you know, United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you bet. And, 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 you know, and those were, those were early explorers. You could almost call them explorers as much as they were for traders. Their, their goal was to establish posts along the river to establish trade with the with the Native Americans uh, to start providing furs. However, that early there was so few of them that only so many vessels could travel back up the river and back to through the Great Lakes. And you kind of think uh, during that time and all the way for the next couple hundred years, really the Great Lakes were our um, main area of exporting fur back to the east and and through the river system to the lakes and. And the, so those early explorers, they they were, uh, as far as uh, making a big impact on huge fur numbers going back, I don't think you would really would have saw that until maybe the late 1700s or early 1800s, especially, when fur really got moving uh, from Iowa. You know, it would have been another century before vast numbers of furs really began moving up the river and down the river by that time. You know, by the uh, 1700s, there was a lot of fur moving south down the river to New Orleans at that time as well. But early on, uh, not much impact. Uh, but as the century drew on towards 1800, it would just increase and increase and increase, you know, along along the river both directions. So almost like almost like uh, the expansion came from the northeast. And then once, you know, the routes to New Orleans started opening up it just became, you know, we're right in the center of that kind in a way. Right. Um, you bet. Yep. Okay. Yep, you bet. And you can kind of think about, you know, as far as geography of it goes, those, those are, you know, New York, the New York area and New England area was heavily settled. And so, you know, and, and on up through, that's where a lot of things would also end up at times. Um, and then, but there was a lot of settlement up around Montreal and the great lakes, uh, the Eastern part of the great lakes. And then, our, our early biggest trading posts for fur were probably at, at I believe I pronounced this right, Mackinac, uh up at Michigan, which would be kind of by Mackinac Island up there, uh, you know, at the tip of the LP of Michigan, where the UP and the LP come together. Right. Uh, if anybody's familiar with that, that was a major fur trading outlet. Um, you know, then it would go on to be Duluth, Green Bay, Prairie du Chien. Um, I might be forgetting a couple, but those were the major, the major spots along the routes that, that were the fur routes that would take things from roughly the Midwest or upper Midwest, I guess I should say, Minnesota, Iowa, um, you know, Southern Canada, you know, above the border of Minnesota and up and through that whole area, Wisconsin, Michigan, and take, you know, they, those would be the routes that would take that fur up through the Great Lakes early on, you know, because um, there really wasn't a lot of, you know, expansion south. So that didn't come until the Spaniards, you know, really, really got going with the fur 
industry until a little bit later than than you know 1700 or 1750 you know okay so in that in that uh period of over 100 years you know f- you know from the time where there was only prairie du chien to the time where uh, Iowa started becoming a state and really started to rock and, and roll because I think Iowa became a state in like 1846. Um, mm-hmm. So, was there any key moments or key uh, forts or something along the Mississippi River that really led to like an explosion in the fur trade in Iowa per se, or was it something that just slowly built over a period of time? I would, I think, I would say it probably slowly and gradually kind of just built as more and more fur traders began to enter the area. um, It just slowly built on a competitive level. So all through those years, Dan, it's so interesting because you have so many influences in the fur trade, everything from wars between countries to um, any any laws that were passed by our government once we once we owned land um, west of the Mississippi to um, Indian and American relations and affairs all these things uh, disease um, you know all these things warring uh, Indian tribes that warred with one that had wars with one another all of these things affected the fur trade throughout you know, a couple of centuries. And so, um, from, you know, from that 1700 to, you know, 1850 range or whatever, probably even earlier, you know, 1830 range, uh, all of those things infected that fur trade so heavily. And, and, uh, so there were periods of time where the fur trade would have been reduced, you know, a period of several years, um, here and there, say, while the French and Indian War was going, 1755 to 1763, or um, just different ups and downs in the fur trade, kind of like we see today a little bit in the way the market and different things have influenced the market. Um, but the but but yeah, it was a gradual, you know, it was a gradual gain in that. And then then the the second biggest part of that would be just the control of it and how countries fought for the control. And when I say countries, I mean primarily England, England, France, and Spain. And um, for those that don't maybe don't remember their history, it, it doesn't come right back to them. I know it for me, sometimes some of that stuff is sketchy that you learned back in, in school. But, uh, you know, the English obviously controlled so much of what was east of the Mississippi River here, and, and the Spanish controlled what was west of the Mississippi River for a period of time. And then the French also controlled that. So the French controlled uh, everything west of the Mississippi up until 1763, I believe, if I'm saying that right, I think. And then uh, when they lost the the war to the British, the British, of course, retained everything east of the Mississippi River. The French lost all of that ground they had east of the Mississippi River, and they ceded ground west of the Mississippi River to the Spanish during that time. The French didn't then gain that ground west of the Mississippi River back until about 1800. And then, of course, as we know, in 1803, Thomas Jefferson uh, was president. He 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 uh, enacted. He he was able to get uh, the Louisiana Purchase and purchase that from Napoleon's um, France. Okay. And so, but yeah, so much of that is dependent on, <laughs> you know, uh, just the competition levels, and they got quite fierce between countries. A lot of those wars and things fought were, in large part, due to control of of not only land but those rights to trade with the Indians and, and, and trap. Okay. So, um, were there any other key players in that, that you can think of or key moments in the fur trade? Let's just say in the late 1700s or the early, uh, you know, the early 1800s where the Louisiana purchase, um, cause you said that it was 1803 when the Louisiana purchase was made. Yes. Okay. Yep. Yep. It was. So, uh, and then how did that impact the fur trade coming through the area? Well, the Louisiana purchase was, was, was interesting in that when we, when we bought that ground, um, it's not that it wasn't, some of it wasn't explored by then. So the French and Spanish had retained the, 
all the land there east and that was included in the Louisiana Purchase. I think the Louisiana Purchase was purchased for fifteen million at eight hundred and twenty-eight thousand acres or square miles. And so, um, when the when the Spanish controlled that area around seventeen ninety-five, they they went up the Missouri River uh, for purposes of exploring the river, um, uh, establishing relationships with native Indian tribes for the purpose of securing uh, fur trading with that tribe exclusively. Um, and that was led by James Mackey and John Evans in 1795. And so they were really the forerunners before Lewis and Clark went up the river. And I think history kind of in some ways forgets that, that they, they were there, they were there first just a few years prior to Lewis and Clark and Lewis and Clark actually gained a lot of valuable insight from the Mackey Evans expedition. Um, uh, they knew them. They used some of their journals and maps. They, you know, they, they had, they weren't completely blind, at least in the first part of their expedition. Now, later on when they got up to Montana and up and through there, you know, the, as the river winded West, I don't, I don't know that the Mackey Evans expedition went as, of course, as far as the Lewis and Clark expedition did, but early on, you know, halfway through the trip, they, for, for halfway through the trip, uh, you know, they had some, some information about those things. And so, you know, when we, when we purchased the, all that land, um, that was, that was, uh, the beginning of the end a little bit for European interests in, in particularly the fur trade. So that was, even though French and British, uh, agents and, and fur traders still operated, it was kind of the beginning of the end, and they would continue to operate in some degree, whether it be under American ownership or, or what, for another couple decades. But, but everything uh, then became, you know, with, with American interest at that point. So like in 1807, there was the U.S. Embargo Act, which prohibited American ships from trading in foreign ports. Well, you, you think about a foreign port being, well, how does that affect trade here? Well, People in the East, you know, that were fur importers from America, that were Americans, no longer could trade their furs and move their ships to foreign ports. So they had to focus interest back here. So in 1807, people like John Jacob Astor, Astor who was the, uh, you know, the founder of American Fur Company, um, well, they began to move their business westward and so that they could supply fur, more fur for here in America. Um, and, and, and those things built, uh, large companies, you know, and, and there was a lot of wealth there, you know, at that time. And then in 1817, there was a, there was the protectionist law that barred foreign traders from us land. And that, that essentially barred all those English and French agents, uh, from operating in the interior of the United States. And so they could no longer legally, um, under their own, under their flag, um, you know, sell and operate up and down our rivers and streams that seems weird to me uh you know because back in the day it seemed like everything was about i mean it, obviously it is today too but you know selling something to whoever wants to buy it right or trading something with whoever wants to buy it is kind of how the world operates but it doesn't seem like that you know once the louisiana purchase was made then we gained control of all of that territory uh, as far as the the big this large area even up into you know when we won independence in 1776 and we started our uh you know becoming america you know what i mean and it's mm -hmm. it just seemed like we just shut off everything with you know with that law about not being able to trade in foreign ports so we couldn't take our furs to foreign countries we no longer allowed people from other countries to trap in our you know to trap under our quote-unquote our flag so it just seems strange to me like it was forcing all those rules forced the fur trade to really struggle at certain points at certain points i think they did you know and and but in the end, I think you know it. It, it you know it it gave um, you know it was kind of the mother of invention in some ways as well. It gave people um, here more right to operate, you know. And and just as I was saying about John Jacob Astor, uh, for those that don't know, he was probably the probably the wealthiest human being on the planet from oh 
eighteen, maybe eighteen oh, eighteen ten till eighteen fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties. I don't really know. The Astor family, of kind of from New York, is one of the richest families I think even in the United States yet today. And 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 he started the American Fur Company because he was a fur importer at one time through New York City, and he would import furs as they came in to Europe, and that's how he made several millions which millions in those days was hard to make and when when that you know when that embargo act hit and the embargo act was partly in in place because there was wars going on between european countries and so we didn't want uh european countries using our using us um you know using us as a you know using us i guess to for their own good or i don't know you know how to say it but they and, and protection for our American ships. And so that was kind of the bigger part of the act, but it forced people like John Jacob Astor now who couldn't import with, to begin focusing on the, you know, the interior. And that's when he purchased um, a, a couple of different fur companies um, and began moving westward. And his American fur company was the first fur company to go all the way to the Pacific ocean. And um, he was, he of course got there in part going you know, through the Missis- down the Mississippi River and working his way west, and and uh, just like a lot of companies did. And uh, so, while it was a tough time for a few years uh, in the fur market, there was also great, uh, you know, wealth to be to be had down the road. And 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 his company in particular ended up swallowing up a lot of smaller traders, small companies that were trying to start. And I think it's important to realize back in those days there was fur was. I think you know the first thing we have to think about is how important and huge fur really was back then, and how much of a a livelihood it gave uh, people. And so how important it was made a lot of upstart businesses, and businesses were constantly starting around you know around those early 1800s, late 1700s, but especially between the years of 1800 to 1830 in the Midwest, companies were were constantly starting and failing, starting and failing. People who would start a company, they might fail a few years later, and then original members who started that company might join with other companies and start a new company. And and there was a lot of those little upstart businesses in the towns all the way up and down the river, such as St. Louis, Prairie du Chien, you know, and all the way back east um, that just rose and fell all the way through. But John Jacob Astor's company, American Fur Company, they they really dominated, and and by the 1820s and 30s, they were swallowing up everybody, and and really had domination on the market. Okay, so was Iowa's role in all of this strictly uh, geographic? Meaning, okay, we we kind of lay uh, lay smack dab in the middle of the Mississippi and the Missouri, you know, back then to travel huge travel corridors, or did we actually have a lot of trapping? like fur coming out of Iowa? Oh, I think a little bit of both, Dan. I think, you know, I think like you say, geographically, we have both rivers, you know, border us. And, and, and so those rivers, you know, obviously were the travel, travel ways, people going north and south up the Mississippi and people venturing west across, you know, the west along the Missouri River, which took us by our western border. And so along the way, there was, they would establish forts. And, those were forts or, or posts, trading posts. And, and those posts were no more than maybe a, an old rickety shack. Might, some of them might have, in the early days, might have had you know, a palisade fence built around them for protection if they were ever sieged by Indians or, or anybody else. But really, it was just a point and place um, for Indians uh, mostly to come and trade. Um, and it, and it offered a, a specific point where everybody knew there's a, there's a fort here. And by the, by the 1815, 1820s, there were a lot of posts by all the different, by several different trading companies up and down the Mississippi and Missouri rivers. And so you could, you could sometimes at times have, have a trading post, um, across the river from one another of two competing companies. That was the case in Omaha. Um, where several competing companies established trading posts there, and they were all within proximity to each, each other. And the Indian tribes, there was competition with those Indian tribes for those those tribes to bring their furs to their trading post. Whoever traded better goods, whoever treated them more fairly, 
they might receive more goods than the uh, the competing trading floats across the river. And so, yeah, a lot of fur did come out of Iowa, especially in those early days. I think you saw by the by the 1830s, um, Iowa became less and less important rather quickly. Um, not only had we trapped out a lot of areas, but we had also expanded further westward for the those untold riches that might lay in the Rocky Mountains and out in the west. Um, and and expansion and settlement was moving into the eastern part of Iowa, therefore pushing the Indian tribes westward by the 1830s. And so therefore you see we don't trade with the Indians as much uh, from that point on because they're starting to be pushed out. And so yeah, a lot of but prior to that, a lot of fur did come out of Iowa, and uh, especially eastern Iowa early, and then western Iowa, you know, as we moved west. Okay, um, so then these ports and these towns that uh, started popping up along the Mississippi River, you know, other than Prairie du Chien, you know, are there any Iowa? cities and towns that maybe started as a a fur trading post that are now like for example the big ones that come to mind right we have dubuque we have clinton we have uh, davenport we have muscatine burlington you know some of the the major cities in iowa did those start off as fur trading posts oh absolutely some of them did you know and that and the reason some of those traders chose those locations because they had maybe a nice area to port. Um, there was a good area of the river for them to bring boats into port, uh, their boat. And so that's because of, or because of the geo, you know, the, the topography of, of the area, they, they just looked like good sites. And so, and those early explorers, they, they, they looked for things like that, a place that offered protection and a place that offered easy port um, you know, and things of that nature. And so a lot of our towns did, you know, can be linked back to their beginnings, traced to the fur trade industry uh, in, in Iowa. Davenport is certainly one of them. Um, Davenport is named after George Davenport, and he was, at a, he was an agent for the American Fur Company. And he came here first, before he was employed by the American Fur Company, he first came here uh, when, when uh, our U.S. government established a fort um at uh let's see i think it was on the i think it was on the east side of the river uh from davenport and then after a few years he became a fur trader uh for as an agent for the american fur company as his employer and he his and then eventually he bought ground on the west side of the river which is davenport today and so his story mirrors many towns up and down the the river you can trace back uh the earliest towns um in iowa as being mcgregor um a, a man named and i probably don't have to get his name right basil giard was probably of french descent Gr- he was granted a land grant by the spanish in 1799 near mcgregor and also julian dubuque was granted a, li- a land right and rights to the lead mines near dubuque in 1796 even earlier uh, another Canadian trapper named Jean Baptiste Faribault, uh brought came into the Iowa interior, establishing a post above the Des Moines River in the eighteen hundred, just around seventeen ninety nine to eighteen hundred. And these these men are our first true settlers of Iowa land because they they were the ones who actually established something here and and planned to live here for an unknown period of time. And so. You know, McGregor and all the way down, Dubuque and all the way down the river. Um, you think about our north part of the river being a lot of uh, French and English um, descended people. And maybe in the south, sometimes you would have Spanish descent or, um, or, that, or that kind of thing coming up from the south in New Orleans and St. Louis. And so, um, you know, everything from Fort Madison being built. Uh, by the, the the fort at Fort Madison was was largely in part to control Indian and and European and American tensions um, during the time and and those tensions wrapped heavily around the fur trade you know and and for for the Indian tribes their their um, existence with white people coming across was was huge um, hugely dependent on on fur trading. And so there were a lot of unrest 
times of unrest and 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 things of that time during the during uh, nature during that time and so so the uh, Fort Madison was built and um, and you can go all the way down you know through Burlington Keokuk all of those towns um, and trace back into the history of our fur heritage. All right, so with this western west uh, western expansion, you know, through the fur trade, um, there's something that kind of uh, caught me, uh, got my attention, and that was the years between 1780 and 1800. Uh, it sounds like people brought some disease to the area. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and, and that you know that was common as as you know, European settlers moved west all over this country, of course, and, and, and smallpox and, and, and different diseases would spread amongst, you know, the Indian tribes that had never been exposed to those European diseases. And of course, they had no immunity. They had no, you know, nothing for many of the diseases. And it, it decimated a lot of Indian, Indian tribes. And, and I, I just, you know, in some research found that particularly between that time period, it really did decimate some some tribes in our region in particular. And and I think if I remember right, I made note of of an Omaha tribe being uh, particularly decimated um, somewhere. I think if I remember right, north of Omaha, the, the, the one one particular um, tribe was maybe decimated down to a, down to almost 300 people, which had been much much larger prior to you know, them contracting, you know, European diseases. And, and, and so, yeah, it was, that was a major, you know, kind of a major thing that, and, and, and where that kind of plays into the fur trade there as well is, you know, you've got these companies who are competing for what the Indians are bringing them for pelts. And when they are depleted and they don't have as, as many warriors going out there to, to hunt and trap, they're not bringing them in as many pelts and that fur company moves on they move on to the next tribe and then they're pretty soon that tribe's infected with diseases and then they move on to the next tribe and you know and so it, it plays a major role in in the fur trade and how we kept expanding west yeah so it sounds like that was just part of life back then i mean people like it was it was a hard hard job being a i guess a trapper and the fur trade was kind of a, a hard. Would you consider it a dirty business? Oh, I think it could have been. I think dirty in lots of ways. I think it would be the the competition was was you know there. If you read you know about fur history up and down the Missouri River, Mississippi rivers, there's there's people killing each other for you know out of competition. There's people burning boats. There's people stealing each other's boats. There's loaded with fur. There's people uh, doing all kinds of shady things to. Um, you know, get favor with local Indian tribes so that Indian tribe only deals with them and not their competitor. Um, and in, in many cases, in the early days, those competitors were nations, you know, France versus versus the British, uh, the Spanish versus the British, um, you know. And so, you know, the Mississippi River in particular was, was heavily, you know, it was, it, was, it was heavily trafficked after, you know, the 18, after 1800 or so. By both the British and the Spanish, it was there was no law. There was no, you know, it was just frontier law out there at that time because the English had everything east of the river, the Spanish had everything west of the river in between 1750 and 1800. And so, so you can imagine both parties trying to trade with Indians on both sides of the river. You can imagine how competitive that could have been and how it could have led to aggression. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, in that time time frame. Uh, are there any other people or any other historical markers that we need to talk about that were that were significant? Sure. Yeah, you bet. You know, and and, and so you know, going back to um, as as early you know as I can, uh, there was a trading post near Clayton, Iowa, established in 1738 um, to trade, and that that's getting that's getting all you know that's getting closer and closer to you know, 300 years ago, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of mind boggling, I guess, to me when I would look at these dates and times of when people were doing these kinds of things, it's just how awe-inspiring that is and how, um, you know, what these people had to go through just to survive and feed themselves while they're trying to establish, you know, trade routes and, and trade. And, and that's, that's kind of one of the earlier, you know, things, uh, there was a, you know, after the, after 1763, when 
when Spain kind of gained control of kind of what was the Louisiana Purchase Territory, there was a Jonathan Carver. Uh, he was actually British, and he became one of the first for first uh, British fur traders in within the boundaries of Iowa. Um, you know, the Revolutionary War certainly impacted some, although maybe not as much as one would think out here. Um, it was mostly, you know, out east um, where, you know, uh, where it impacted things. Um, the Northwest Company was established in 1783. They were a major player along with Hudson Bay during that time and for the next, you know, for, for a long period of time and really uh, spurred competition. Um um, and then as you go forward, other things, then if you get into the about 1800, things really begin to pick up as far as the different things that influence the fur trade, as far as, you know, uh, like the Spanish granted uh, Andrew Todd rights to, to run up and down the Mississippi River to bring furs south down towards New Orleans and, and, and port out of there. Um, and and the, the Indians really, um, from all accounts, really favored him. They, they liked him. And they liked trading with him. He treated them well. Um, you know, uh, then, then of course, in 1795, we began the, or not we, but the Spanish began exploration up the Missouri River. Uh, there were, you know, and began putting trading, uh, trading posts along the river. I think one was near Sergeant Bluff in 1795 was the first one, and that was a result of their expedition. I think another one was down around the mouth of the Platte River. Um, and that they left off a man off their boat and he had to stay there and establish a post and, and make, make relations with the Indian tribes. You can imagine how kind of how scary that would be, you know, um, I'm going to leave you alone here and you're going to, you're going to, you're going to, uh, <laughs> Good luck, the local Indian tribes <laughs> that you don't understand their language and you two are going to figure out how to not only get along, but negotiate trade. So yeah, just how interesting is that, you know, and that to me, I guess is just, uh, the braveness of those people that did that and and i suppose the greed to some extent it was all about you know the greed of it and and but some of them probably had a real passion for it you know they loved being you know that quote-unquote mountain man you know experience i would assume you know that's but that's how they lived that's how life was that they didn't know any different either so okay so what years would you say were the peak of the fur trade in the area or in the united states and that early a time, you know, I think definitely, you know, after the War of 1812, probably uh, during the War of 1812, trade really come to a, a, a close. I mean, along the rivers. But once a, once the war was over, I think during that period of time till maybe early 1830s was when you would have saw the most furs, you know, going out of going out of Iowa. And we were, you know, we were reaching that time period where. Um, um, there were becoming more and more just people uh, coming in. You know, we had people from the, you know, in the, from 1815 to 1830 and eight, even 1810 to 1830, you had more people along the Missouri river and, and you had more, and you had plenty of people along the Mississippi river, all trading. And you also had people venturing into the interior of Iowa at a heavier rate. Um, you know, we had, we had people uh, going up uh, the Des Moines river, um, you know, and things like that going into the interior to trade with those interior tribes. And so that's when the most fur would have left the period. By the 1830s, um, mid-1830s, beaver prices fell um, fell on the face. And we, we kind of remember that prior to that, beaver dominated. It was it was what all those hats were made out of. It was, and, and everybody wore a hat in Europe and even Eastern, you know, America at that time. That was that was the fashion of the day. And just like today, the fur market follows the fashion trends. And so beaver was was dominant. And so when beaver became trapped out of existence in Europe, they have relied more and more heavily on what was coming here from America and Canada. And so, um, you know, as beaver began getting trapped out east trappers moved west trap more beaver then they trap those out and they continue to move west and and then then that thirst for beaver kind of fell in europe in the 1830s and so by that time trappers and indians alike started taking more buffalo and deer and coyote and otter and other things and so by yeah by the by the 1820s 1830s 
in particular, there was everything from beeswax to um, feathers to you name it going out of going out of up the rivers and out of Iowa. Okay, so uh, about this the fur trade specifically, what was the big one of the biggest reasons why it fell? Was it simply a fashion choice by people? Yeah. Like, but- now we don't want to wear beaver hats anymore or was it something from a a manufacturing standpoint like you know what cotton now is the is the the fabric that we're going to start using a little bit the latter i think is when you reference at least the particular time over the 1830s silk became a popular um a popular material make uh to make garments okay so uh, silk hats became very popular in Europe, um, and just like our fashion trends, things change, and things changed then as well. And and uh, if I if I'm not incorrect, I believe silk in that during that time period really really kind of hurt the the beaver trade. And and as with anything in the fur market, shortages bring on new competition. So if there's a beaver shortage at any period of time somebody's looking for something else to make hats out of so they can sell and make a, make, make a living. And so people started during shortages, making more and more and more hats out of silk. Um, and those became popular, you know? And so, yeah, the, the kind of bit, a little bit of the latter of what you were saying there, as far as that time period. Gotcha. All right. So as the, you know, as the, the fur market starts to dwindle and dwindle and dwindle, uh, you know, almost to the point where, you know the fur market changes and the over trapping you know because i have a feeling that if if it was just over trapping then the the demand would cause the price per pelt to really be you know it would be it would be worth something was there anything done in that time to i on a conservation effort that that you can think of like oh man we really need to stop trapping so much if we want to be able to trap and continue to trap oh i don't i don't i don't i don't recall ever really reading any like anything like that I, I think conservation at that period of time was maybe something in america um especially as you traveled west something that not a lot of people were really had a grasp or you know grasp of and so we just uh you know that's thirst and greed for for fur um you know dominated and it just was it was something that that we just kept moving west you know and and a big part of that was just that as the as the native american people those those were our trappers you know our our native americans in those early times those were the trappers we relied on iowa wasn't so much a um people coming people coming west to trap iowa you didn't have a lot of that most of the people that came west um were traders they were the ones who traded with the indians and the indians did the trapping the, you know and so as the indian population trapped things out and moved west well there wasn't anybody there there wasn't a lot of of european settlers there to bring them furs anymore because we weren't settled and so there's that time period between settlement between native american um, um leaving and european settlement europeans settling that that just further and further expands the the fur trading westward okay so what happened to iowa let's say as the fur trade just took a big hit did did towns recede did did communities just like disappear did less people live in the state uh you know maybe to some extent but but not for very long so you know, and that they all, you know, kind of, it all kind of goes in with one another. And I'll give you, you know, kind of an example of that. And that's, you know, by the early 1830s, beaver prices are fallen. We've Indian tribes have trapped out a lot of beavers in the rivers and, and streams. Traders are move, starting to begin to move west to find new Indian tribes with larger populations of beaver and other animals. And the the wars and things that have the associations um, between alliances between Indian tribes and countries are still still playing out even by the 1830s. For instance, like the Black Hawk War. Um, Black Hawk um, had been um, had been an ally, I believe, to the English, and so 
in around the war, time of 1812. And so the by 1832, he'd had enough of people wanting to push his tribes back and keep pushing them west. And so there was the Black Hawk War, which in the end ceded lands uh, for Indian nations in eastern Iowa. And then, then by 1837, with the first and second Black Hawk land purchases that were made, um, further pushed tribes westward to like the Iowa River and the Des Moines River. And so... Those are that's that's kind of how it kind of how it happened. It was the settlement, and after and at the same time, uh, beaver and other animal populations were declining. So it all kind of just hand in hand. Okay, so yeah, we we talked a lot about the Mississippi River and the Missouri River, but obviously Iowa has a wealth of waterways interior as well. You know, like you mentioned, the Cedar, the Iowa, the Des Moines, uh, the Skunk. You know. Um, I'm sure there's um, a couple others that are pretty big ones uh, as well that, you know, probably had some, uh, I guess you could say, history with the fur trade. Were there any other, let's say, like interior cities that may played a huge impact on the uh, on the fur trade and the I guess the foundation of the state of Iowa? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And and. You know, and, and just mentioning, you know, our Black Hawk land purchases that moved tribes to the Iowa River, the Des Moines River, those tribes were were staying there along those rivers, interior rivers, you know. And, and so um, guys like a fur trader John Gilbert um, moved up the Iowa River. You know, Alexander Ross traded along the Cedar River near present-day Iowa City. Um, he traded with Meskwakis there. And uh, so those those were major trading routes, and 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 so Iowa City and Johnson County really became an area of land where you know the Meskwaki resided, and was kind of a geopolitical center of of the area because settlers were beginning to come in in the 1830s and 18 early 1840s. So so settlers began streaming over the river and and. You know, once Black Hawk was defeated and there was safety, you know, um, and so they found Gilbert's Trading Post because there wasn't much here. So where would you go when you're in a wagon train headed? You're going to go to where there's other people, you know, and so there's there's where the trading post was. And so from there springs up other businesses and other things along the river. And so that's how, you know, places like Iowa City and, you know, not not only became uh, – what it is today it, it you know that was it was our capital of iowa you know at one time and so um yeah absolutely some of these towns you know atumwa um had a had a trading post um somewhere north of atumwa uh, i believe um at one time you know different different towns like that were all uh, a lot of them were were associated with the fur trade so you know at, at one point we have this huge fur trade in the state of Iowa, right? Uh, or, you know, Iowa is somewhat in the center of it, you know, because the fur trade is all the way up and down the waterways of all, you know, the Midwest or the entire United States. But when did the fur trade kind of just fall off? Well, you can see it in that 1830 range. And really, I, I kind of focused the article. I, you know, we did a two-part article. And, and the reason we did that is you could write – you could write three books on <laughs> on the fur trade and and how it moved westward and in, in, in even in particular kind of Iowa. You could just write and write and write on the entire history, and you could continue to write until after the period of 1830. But I kind of had to cut it off somewhere. And right. so that 1830 to 1840 time is really the time when Indian tribes begin to move away. And of course, those were those. That's where the fur numbers came from. Was those early, you know, Indian tribes with those early traders that. That came to Iowa, and so really after the 1830s, I didn't focus much on the articles as far as what the the fur history um, in Iowa has been. I've read some on it, and and you know that that's where the change takes place between um, settlers trapping. So our our entire the entire Iowa landscaping of trapping changes completely, you know, in the 1840s and 50s and and stuff like that, because you have no more. Um, Native American people bringing furs. It's what the settlers take and sell, and some they used for their own, you know. And so, 
the real vast majority of furs are coming from the West at that period. And, and so as far as, as the market goes, um, you know, the market still had areas or uh, periods of up and down, you know, through the 1800s and on past that period of time in which there were probably fur booms in other states further west of here. So when I mean, we, we think of the mountain men and everybody that went out west, why there were obviously money to be had in furs or we wouldn't have been exploring there and trapping. So, so the, the fur market really, you know, began to, to fluctuate or fluctuated just as it did today um, over periods of, you know, anywhere from one to five, 10 year periods. Cool, man. Awesome. Well, I tell you what, man, this is uh this was an awesome conversation. And I strongly suggest that if you guys want to get more details into this, this story to try to find uh, an issue of the May and June uh, to two part series, uh, try to try to find that and get that. Uh, maybe I'll try to talk. Uh, maybe I'll try to talk uh, Patrick into posting these articles on the website as well. But I mean, I love this kind of stuff. And, and we just scratched the surface as far as things we could have talked about that, you know, as far as the role Iowa played in in the fur trade. But uh, but we'll, let's close it out with this. Do you happen to have any cool facts or any anything else from a historical standpoint about the state of Iowa that you would like to, to share with us that you found out during this research? Well, I think we covered a lot of it, but, uh, you know, I think just the, um, just the thinking back of, of how all of it played a part, I think yeah. is, is, is kind of something that's tough, tough for us to grasp, not only how life was then for people, but, but how everything came into play. Um, and, and, and a lot of it just had to do with geographical areas of ownership, you know, between the British, between the Spanish, between the French, and then eventually America and America's entrepreneurship to once we were in the game, so to speak, to, to push European nations out and take what, what was, was kind of ours here that we had purchased and, and, and to move forward. And a lot of mistakes were made and, but, but, uh, and, and I think the the other side, which is just as important as the, the Native American um, side of things as far as their influence on how without them, the fur trade, you know, didn't wouldn't have looked the same, you know, and Absolutely. and that's that's kind of, you know, that they they did the work and, and really American industry, um, they were the cheap labor labor of of American it for industry, if you want to look at it that way, and they were exploited, you know, and traders brought whiskey and, and things and, and, uh, exploited the Indians, um, terribly at times. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and so uh, just the entire, um, in scoping grasp of that is hard to get, but it's, it's, it, everything played a role here in Iowa. Um, with our fur history. And it's just, it's so interesting. And like you said, I encourage anybody to, to read the articles. And then if you're further um, interested, get online, do some research or grab a couple of books and different things or whatever that, that they're about the topics, because there's certainly so much more than what I could cover in, in two articles is about 4,500 words. So, you right. know, there was so much stuff I wanted to include and just couldn't, it's hard to, hard to stop writing about because um, you know, there's, there is so much history there and, and just uh, just the understanding that what we have today um, around here, that everything from from what some of our towns are named to to travel routes to everything else, really is built upon the foundation of the fur industry and uh, how how we kind of for, you know I think I think we kind of forget that a little bit yeah. and. Uh, um, but it's, yeah, it's so interesting. Absolutely. Well, and I, I'll tell you this, um, I've been to a handful of museums in Iowa, you know, you have effigy mounds, right? They have a, a pretty mm -hmm. cool little visitor center there that kind of tells a story of, you know, Indians role. Then they have the American history uh, museum, uh, on the campus of the U university of Iowa that has a lot of cool things about, um, 
I guess the, the the birth of this area as far as the European, you know, working and eventually pushing out the Native Americans, right? Uh, something that you that we talked about in this fur trade thing. But there's a lot of cool museums in Iowa that uh, you could go to and find out some information about this as well. Uh, not necessarily fur trade specific, but his, you know, historical. You bet. You bet. All over Iowa, and even even just the uh, even just across the borders, maybe on like say the Omaha side, or that that that's pretty much hand in hand with our Iowa heritage. You know, like Manuel Lisa uh, started the Missouri Fur Company, and they they were really well liked by the Indian tribes around Omaha area and up and down the Missouri River. And there's I think there's a and I've never been there, but I believe there's a you know there's a site there you can go see. Uh, dedicated to Manuel Lisa. Uh, there's, yeah, there's uh, the things you mentioned, and and there's other little things. If you ever travel up the Mississippi River, um, and on even up into Wisconsin, I mean, it's that you'll find historical markers along the way of fur trappers and fur traders that uh, that came down the river and the years in which they maybe were there. And it's kind of inspiring to stop and see that and think back. My gosh, that was, you know, you think back, it's 300 and some years ago, you know, and it's it's kind of um, hard to wrap your mind around. But it, there's a lot of neat things that are still here that, that uh, show and display our history. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Troy, man, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to uh, chit-chat with us about this. Thank you very much. And uh, uh, do you have any other cool articles like this planned for the future? We have a – I have a pheasant article coming out. I think everybody will be – pretty interested in even if even if you don't get out and pheasant on a whole lot i think you're going to find it interesting we're uh doing that i think uh the next issue coming out is going to have a couple other articles and it'll be the issue after that and pardon me at the moment here for not remember which month that is i believe it must be the september article i'll have a pheasant article in and it uh it details our pheasant heritage and um iowa um how it's going how how it came about the introduction of pheasants because of course they weren't native to our land and so um we're going to do kind of another you know history article completely different than the trapping one of course but it's yeah it'll detail that and how pheasants started here in iowa how they boomed and how how the dnr and our game uh commissions um got them going and the struggle that it was to get them going in certain places and so it's it's been that uh, i just got it wrote up uh, like i say it won't be out for a couple of months but uh Boy, I had a lot of fun writing it. It was fun. I'm now I'm an avid pheasant hunter, and so I, it, it uh, was interest to me, and and it it'll be a good read, I think, for those interested in that. Cool, man. Well, thanks again, and uh, hopefully you get out on the water and do a little fishing soon. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> and you as well. 